You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. It's good to see you guys. And, uh, and like I said, summer is one of my, one of my favorite seasons. Um, my, my wife has the kids on full-on kid camp. When you got four, you got to have a camp. I think it's three. You can still kind of just do normal Mary Poppins stuff, but once it's four, you got to have a whistle and a clipboard or something because otherwise your, your house will run away from you very, very quickly. And so nine o'clock is, uh, is uh, you know, dress time, and then 10 o'clock is, is library time, and 11 o'clock is pool time. We might, we might get like one of those T-shirts that says, you know, we actually do have a t-shirt that says Wong's work hard. We might wear that, you know, in the library, like the way the kids all hold hands and go to the drive game together. Um, that's kind of that's where we're at right now. Um, but uh, June also does mean, you know, for our series and our time in Matthew um, that we are um, ready to kind of come to a close. I think I counted up about 22 messages in total. Obviously, we didn't touch on every verse and every nook and cranny of the book, but the goal was to kind of get the general themes um, Connected and actually, this, the words that appear on the screen um, have 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 offered rails, have offered kind of like a track to understand the larger question of um, what it means to follow Jesus as we read uh, the, the the pages, the characters of the people um, in the Gospel of Matthew. Like, what is it like to step into their shoes um, and walk what, the way that they walked? But in 2019, like, what would it be like to be like them, to be disciples, to be followers of Jesus, to be covered in the dust of the Rabbi of Jesus? Has been the perennial question, the overarching question, and and so there were there were five different uh, invitations um, that that I've spotted, um, and they each lined up with with the different segments that we did from the inside out and the outside in, and from blindness to belief, and so on and so forth, and uh, and the five invitations that that I I've seen um, all start with the word come on, like come follow, come be a part. It, it's not information, it's 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 incarnation and invitation really that Jesus is saying like I don't want you to just know stuff, I want you to know me. And I want you to be invited into this kind of life with me. And so there's different phases of the relationship as the story and the narrative progress. There was a come and see phase where Jesus was saying, hey, like, come and find out. Like, I'm not trying to sell you something that's not real. I want you to test drive it. I want you to see with your own eyes and, and feel with your own hands what, what it's like to put your hands on somebody and see their eyes, you know, opened up. And I want you to, to hear with like a first-person perspective from the heart of a friend, not from a teacher or a scholar, like what the voice of God sounds like um, on, on the mountain of Galilee or any other place that Jesus gave sermons. I want you to see and know and taste that the truth of God is better than a textbook. And I want you to, to, to be with me in that. I want you to experience not just knowing about me, but knowing me and being with me and spending time with me. You know, not, not every transference is about information. A lot of it is about the spending of time, the rubbing off on each other, uh, the shouldering with each other that, that, that represents actually knowing God. And so relationally, I want you to be with me. And, and I'm not here just to make you kind of like a little fan or a little like, you know, prop or a puppet. Like, I want you to, to know the master's business, and I want you to do as I do. I, I believe in you, Peter. Like, I'm going to call you out on the water, and, and so, like, as I walk on the water, it's not for you to sit there and cheer. Like, I'm going to go to a place on this water, and then I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to say, you come out with me. And I want, I want you, 
I want you to pray with me, and I want you to pray for the sick, and I want, I want you to know the master's business, and I want you to, to speak and share the good news of the gospel with others. And I want you to, to baptize and lay hands. I want you to be a part of it. This is a 360 saturated, you know, incarnational experience I want you to be a part of in this discipleship. And, and, and in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the ultimate agenda, really, or the ultimate end of what it really does mean to be a disciple. It's no more clear than this, and I think it's Matthew 20-something. It's later in the passage. But, but he says, basically, to be a disciple... Um, it doesn't just involve some or one of these invitations. It, 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 it actually speaks of all of the invitations. It, it's, it's, to, it's to be a part of the family of God and to know God. And, and that looks like picking up your cross and carrying it daily and dying to yourself and following me. Jesus describes the discipleship process not as being a fan, uh, not as just being a friend, not as just being a casual acquaintance of Jesus, but an all-in kind of thing, a, a saying goodbye to the old life. Um, it's, it's finding a new life by letting go of an old life, by, by realizing what, what we have is not better than what we have in him. And it's laying down life. It's, it's, it's picking up the cross daily um, and not just observing and seeing and being with Jesus, but literally letting him live inside of us and so that we are dead to ourselves anymore. And all that we know and all that we have is only, only Jesus. And, uh, and that is the invitation, and the, and the crowds go slimmer, really, over time, and, and his popularity wanes over time, and uh, ultimately, um, we see the, the physical representation of his rhetorical, uh, you know, uh, invitations at the cross, and we see him die and be resurrected by the Holy Spirit, and he says, I want you to follow me in that, too. I trusted the Holy Spirit. And, you know, Jesus, when he died, he, he didn't pull himself out of the ground. He was at the mercy of the power of the Holy Spirit to raise him up again. And he invites us, he invites all of us to not make this about knowing more stuff, but knowing him and being a part of his life and dying to ourselves so we'd be made completely new in him. This last segment of Matthew 20, uh, 5 through 28, um, is a segment that's really short that I just have been calling from the ring to the wedding. Everybody say, from the ring to the wedding. To the wedding. We had an engagement. Zach, is Zach here? No, is Zach here? Zach, Zach Robinson was engaged um, last weekend uh, at the baptism, and I was like, why didn't you tell me, man? You could have done it right up on stage. It would have been a great sermon illustration um, to what, what I really see um, in the pages, pages, last pages of the gospel. He, he, um, it's prophesied. You know, like it, wasn't, it wasn't a new idea to God um, that Jesus would, um, would, would leave his disciples um, with this promise of engagement, this kind of like... Um, I want, you to, I want you to wait for me as I leave and go and prepare a place. In the Old Testament Jewish tradition, that's the way that it went, is that um, it wasn't like we just go around and do wedding planning together and do a tiethenot.com and make a hashtag with our names together. It's like the Jewish tradition was like the man would go and he would leave the fiancé and go and be betrothed and leave that place and go and make a new home for the fiancé. And, and, and the fiancé wouldn't all the time know when that would ultimately happen. They wouldn't know ultimately when the house would be finished and when the work would be done, but, but she would wait for the husband to return. And so this is the picture that we get of, of heaven, really, is that Jesus is not just a leader, he's a lover, and that he wants to marry his people. Um, you could say that sin, the brokenness of this life, acts as a divorce agent between God and man, that it divorces man from God. 
C.S. Lewis calls it the great divorce, actually. And so uh, to be married to Jesus um, or engaged to Jesus is just saying that, that Jesus has not allowed divorce to separate him from his wife. Amen? And so his heart is to continue to pursue his bride, the church, is to continue to send the Holy Spirit to prepare the church for eternity with him. And when we get to heaven, it is not a DMV where hopefully we have our papers ready. It's a celebration banquet. Revelation 15 and 21 talks about the, the wedding banquet of the Lamb, where there is much celebration. It's not coerced. It's not a, a choir that we practice singing. It's like, what else could we do except for dance and sing and celebrate of, of the great husband, the greatest husband that ever lived, calling his bride back to himself, even in the midst and despite of great pain, great suffering, and great divorce from, from their God. And so that's where we are. We're waiting for this. This is the journal question that I've asked us to process and pray through. Maybe you pray for it in your seat this morning, that you would hear from him, not just from the scriptures. Holy Spirit, are you getting me ready? Like, how are you getting me ready for this wedding? How are you preparing, like we talked about last week, the garments that I wear, the spiritual garments that I wear that you have prepared for me? Like, how, how are you getting me ready for that, to wear the spiritual garment of praise rather than the spiritual garment of depression or the spiritual garment of hope rather than the spiritual garment of shame? Like, how am I wearing the clothing of Jesus, the garments of Jesus? And what we, what we wanted to assert to ourselves last week and really just like, like confirm in our hearts, it's like, the heaven banquet is not about good people getting to a good meal. Heaven is not a place for good people. It said specifically in the parable that both good and bad all were called. And people in heaven are not good people. They are, they are only the people that will wear the garments of Jesus ultimately. That is ultimately the only way that we will attend this great wedding. The only way that we will be a bride ready for her groom. But there's a second question, I believe, when we get to heaven. That will, be, that will be processed, that will be discussed when we get to heaven as we account for our life and as we move from this chapter into the next. There's, there's the question of what did you do with my son? That's the first question that will be asked of us. The question is what did you do with Jesus? Like what did you think about him? You know, did, you, did, you, did you dislike him? Did you casually approach him? Did you follow him? Did you, were you a fan? Were you a follower? Like what did you do with my son is what heaven wants to know. But the second question that heaven wants to know is what did you do with your life? What did you do with the 24-7 and the 365? What did you do with the Sundays through Sundays? Like, what did you do with your life? And, and the scriptures are very clear that the foundation of our life is Jesus that can't get burned up. But then on top of that, we have an opportunity to build things on top of that foundation that either get burned up or remain at the end of time. And so the Bible calls this kind of stuff, I joked about Matt Cochran, but it's very biblical, this idea of treasures um, that we, that we uh, install, that we invest into the future, that we send ahead into eternity. And so the second question um, is not, not all about the garments of what we're going to be wearing when we go to this wedding, but the gift that we bring to him is going to be significant. I don't know if you've ever over-procrastinated for a gift, like you just said, oh, I'll get it you know, tomorrow, and it's three days out, and then you're like, I'll get it tomorrow, and then you like, show up to the party. And you're like, I don't believe in gifts in the first place. We're all friends. We don't need gifts. And then everybody else has an amazing, you know, ninja blender or whatever it is that they gave. And you're just like, here, I got you uh, this piece of chocolate that I got in the public's, you know, um, checkout. Um, is, is that we don't want to come unprepared for this thing, right? Like we want to have this gift to bring Jesus. 
It's in our heart, you know? Like, I've always wanted to, to give a great gift to my dad. I remember one time, I was like, he's bald. I'll get him big razors. He's, he needs a lot of those to shave his head. And uh, much to my behest, I've never really given him a gift. He's the guy that has everything, I guess. Can't give him a gift that, 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 he, that he loves. But today is my mother-in-law's birthday. Um, and so, like, I remember last Christmas, um, uh, or a couple Christmases ago, rather, the family got together and got her this trip to Ireland which is awesome. It was this balling trip and the flight and everything. And, and she got to go for a couple of weeks and go like reunite with like aunts and uncles and people she had never met before. And she would just receive this gift and she's like weeping. And this is the picture that Jesus gives us. And we're going to read the parable here in a moment. <clears throat> but we're going to go to Jesus with this gift. And, and it's this opportunity to meet our God face to face. And with all of the things that he's given us, it's this opportunity just to give, give back to our dad, give back to our father. And he's going... I want to warn you, I want to not warn you, but I want to prepare you for that moment. I want you to know that you have an opportunity to do something down here that you can't do up there, which is to prepare a gift in faith and get something ready to give to him on that day. You want to, you want to be in this place that you can give this gift, and there's these words that the Father speaks, and it's these words that I think that we all want, whether we know Jesus or not. It's this, this assertion that we lived our life before God the right way. Even if there was critics and failures that went on, we just want to hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. These 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 echoing words that would, would, would hit our soul in such a way if we were to hear them from our maker, like who cares what our enemies or critics would say if we heard those words from our father, well good, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so um, let me pray for us once more. Jesus, I ask that you would prepare um, with your spirit uh, this church and, and the Big C Church for that day, that we would be focused and ready and positioned in the right way to know who we are and where we're headed, God. Uh, we thank you, God, for your scriptures that don't leave us alone in that way and your spirit that is activating these scriptures in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so uh, around about February in, uh, in, uh, in U.S. history class, you, you always need to teach about uh, the Great Depression, the stock market crash of 1929 and the years leading up to World War II under FDR that the, 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 the country struggled with 25% unemployment. It's the greatest uh, depression, obviously, that our country has ever seen, and it's always super complicated to explain to the high school students exactly why money just disappears. They're like, just print more of it. Just make more. Uh, we, all, we can all just be rich, you know? <clears throat> and so, um, you know, you do the different activities, and you show how credit bubbles get created when too much credit's offered, and if the economy gets too uh, optimistic about its future, then it invests too fast, and then the credit creates this bubble of money that's not really there, and then if somebody defaults on that credit, then the bubble pops, and the whole thing falls apart, and so you would try to explain it, and the first five kids would get it, the rest of them would just fall asleep. Um, but, um, <clears throat> but, but, but the Great Depression um, put America through, I think it said... Uh, I think it's 15 million people with a smaller population overall were unemployed during that time. And some of the most wealthy and richest people, you know, that had stocks in the wrong commodities, et cetera, like were literally on a penthouse apartment in New York and then on the street the next day. I mean, it was like this massive, you know, financial and even spiritual and emotional crisis that led to suicides and depression and problems and <clears throat> a lot of economic of turmoil and, and really just the, the decay of the American spirit of, of, of the ability to, to thrive and succeed. And so um, this is a picture, I think. Did we have the picture of the car with the thing? I don't know. There it is. Okay. Yeah, so this is a picture that I thought typified it. $100 will buy this car, must have cash, um, lost all on the stock market. So, so a guy like that would have um, needed to make a lot of big life-changing decisions, you know, like 
Um, many of you guys know and have grandparents that are part of the depression, you know, generation where it's like cash wasn't safe anymore. You know, only precious metal or maybe land or real estate was the only way. Cars and cash and all that stuff um, was um, was not worth you know nearly as much. And so you would you would um, you you would kind of hunker down. You would kind of pull things out of the stock market. That's ultimately what what happened in the crash that started in a recession then ended in, in a depression is that you would try and take your money out of the market, take your money um, out of the system and bury it in the mattress or hide it in the floorboards. I know I've got grandparents that literally took their cash and hide it, hid it in floorboards so that nobody else um, could, could have it. <clears throat> and, and I say all that because there's a lot of economic principles in the kingdom of heaven. I want to put this quote up here and really sit on it for a second. But, um, but here's the thing. Um, that I, that I started to see as I looked at this passage, which is pretty economic. It's not about a wedding. It's actually about a, a business transaction, a master and servants. And, uh, and this is the kind of thought that struck me. I thought to myself, if, 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 I, if I had a, a lack of faith that, that the market was going to be strong tomorrow, then my default response would be to pull my money out of the market, is that I would be afraid that my market, that my money shared in the market would, would suffer and that my dollar today would be, less, would be worth less tomorrow and I would want to make sure to protect my dollar from that and I'd pull my money out of the market. Um, if I believed in Bitcoin, which was all the rage, whatever it was a couple of years ago, that the market was going was gonna to boom. If it was a bull market, if it was going to move on and up, it was going up and to the right, I would want to make sure to get the most of my money possible as fast as I could into the market. And so this is the thought that I had about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. If we believed, and we might think about this like in our own personal life, like based on our, on our actions, it might tell us a little bit about our beliefs. But like if our belief, if you think about it, were that Jesus was more optimistic than reality should give him credit for, if we believe that the kingdom of heaven wasn't at hand anymore, or if the kingdom of heaven was only at hand when he was here, or if the kingdom of heaven isn't a part of my life, or is for somebody else that's more successful than me. Like, if I believe that the kingdom of heaven was in a recession, if I believe that it wasn't going anywhere, if I believe that there wasn't any hope, if I believe that if I gave to a stranger that that, that, that trust would be abused, if I believed that if I shared my heart with a friend, I'd get trampled on, if I believed that I prayed for the sick, they wouldn't get healed, if I believed that if I shared the gospel with somebody that they would reject me, if I believed that the church, the American church, was died and dying and anemic, if I believed that the church was pointless, if I believed that you know, we're all wasting our time, if I believed that Jesus wasn't real, if I believed that the kingdom wasn't being multiplied, then wouldn't my natural response be to pull my life out of it as quickly as possible? Wouldn't that be the natural response of somebody that believed that the kingdom of heaven was dead? If I believed that the kingdom of heaven was in recession, if it was anemic, if it was slow, if it, was, if it wasn't uh, alive and awake and vibrant, wouldn't my natural default knee-jerk reaction be to pull my life out as fast as possible? To give as little as possible, to give as least as possible, to do the least amount needed, to pray the least amount? Like, wouldn't that be the natural lethargic response if I believed that that was true. But the act, absolute opposite would become true, wouldn't it? If somehow the words of Jesus would penetrate my heart beyond my circumstance, and I would believe with my, with my spirit instead of my eyes, 
and I would believe in what's not seen instead of what's seen, I would start to look at the world differently. If I believe Jesus' word over the word of my world, I would start to look at the kingdom of heaven the way that he puts it is in a revival, not at a recession. And now would be the time to invest, to double down, to put more in, to ask how much more can I give to promote and do first and foremost the things of the kingdom of heaven. If I really believe that there was double my money on anything that I would invest into that kind of a market, wouldn't I find myself giving more and more and more into it? Isn't it back to the very basis of the belief of is the kingdom of heaven in a recession or is it in a revival? Doesn't that affect everything we do towards the kingdom of heaven? So this is what the passage says. Again, it's not about a wedding. It's about a business transaction. Jesus opens up with a parable. He says, again, it will be like a man who goes on a journey. This is the father. Or this is Jesus, actually. Kind of like I said with the engagement. He leaves. And many of these prophecies talk about when he comes back, right? So he calls his servants and, and he entrusts his wealth to them. He gives, he gives them this amazing amount of wealth. So here it goes. There's three numbers. To the first man, he gives five bags of gold. To the second man, he gives two bags of gold. And to the third, he gives one bag of gold. So we need to, we need to make sure to put our feet solidly on the beginning of the setup of this, of this parable in this passage. We had to get a vision and a glimpse. Like a bag of gold is like a lifetime's worth of money back then. Like gold. We're not talking about like silver or like spices or cumin. Like we're talking about like gold is, always holds its worth in and out of depressions. And he's giving some of these guys his servants that he might not even know. I mean, the common conjecture there is like, I don't know my servants. I don't talk to them. They're just kind of little peons. He's like, he's giving his servants. He calls them in the office one day. He says, you know, Phil, come on in here. I don't know you from Adam, um, and uh, you seem like a bright guy, and uh, I think I like the way your eyes are set. Here is $5 million. Like, this is the audacity. We have to, we have to get a, a picture, and it is important. We're going to carry this through the reading today. But, like, we have to get a picture of the character of God. If, if this is how Jesus is presenting God, God is a obscenely and scandalously and lavishly generous and trusting person. I mean, the key root word, really, of, of a couple of these different passages, if we go back to the, to the very first thing, is that he, he brings these guys in. They've got no resume. They've got no history. They've got no, 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 no pecking order. They've got no proof. He's got no character reference for this guy. He just pulls him in, and, and the Scripture says he entrusts. That word's going to show up again. He entrusts the very, like, treasures of heaven to this person. And this, is, and this is the picture that we get that like, like in John 3.16, it's like Jesus, Jesus like isn't ambivalent about the world. Like he loves the world so much he dies for the world and yet he entrusts it to people. He says, all authority is mine on earth and heaven and I don't have a plan B. You're the plan. You're going to bring the kingdom of heaven. Like, like I don't know if you've stopped and thought about this like if you're a parent, but like I, I stop and think about this and I know me and I know him and I know my kids, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm in his position that you let me take care of Leo. Like, I don't know if I'm the best possible person for this. Like, I kind of got C's in high school. Like, I'm kind of chill sometimes, and I kind of look like I'm 12. Like, like there's this thing, like, I'm, I'm just going, like, I can't really fathom sometimes all the danger that Jesus puts Leo in by entrusting him to me. But he entrusts him to me. Like he entrusts children. If you're a teacher, they're only going to get one third grade teacher. 
And third grade's a big deal, you know? Like, like that's the year, I don't know, the fourth grade I hear is crazy, but third grade like prepares them for fourth grade and they're never going to get an opportunity to read on that third grade level and match those standards the way that you do and they're never going to get an opportunity to see authority in the way that they see it. Like those 30 kids are entrusted to you. And Jesus doesn't know anything about what you're going to do about it. He doesn't have to do that. But the picture we get of God's heart, he's like, I'd rather do life with you than without you. I'd rather trust you and risk on you. I'd rather see love and see it rejected than not loved at all. I'd rather entrust the world to you. I'd rather give you a choice. I'd rather let you reject me. I know the pain. I know the heartache. I've seen the cost-benefit analysis. And yet still, I choose to love you and choose to trust you, even though I know that you're a sinner. This is the heart of God. This is the character of God. And we, we have to carry this as we look at the passage because this is the guy that we're dealing with. It's the guy who pulls in Todd, Larry, and Mo, who have no experience or history or resume and says, I trust you with my inheritance. I trust you with all that I have. The things that I hold near and dear, it's not because of you. It's not because of your reputation. It's not because of your character. It's because of who I am, because of my character. I can only trust. I can only love. I love always trust. It always perseveres. This is my nature. I have to do this. This is, this is the way that I'm wired. And so he, he entrusts all this money to these people. And then the next verse says, The man who received five bags of gold when, when, when the owner master comes home, boss guy comes home, he, he puts his money to work and he gains five more. And so the market must be good. And the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus is talking about, must be, you know, fruitful. It must be profitable. There's guys putting in money, doubling the money. If I, if I told you today you could put in $100 and find have, have $200 tomorrow, that would affect you based on your, your projection of the market. You would treat it, your money differently. And so they, they give all their money. The guy gives, says, I, I see it. I believe it. I, 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 feel, I feel entrusted by, by my master. I mean, what if like, like picture your dream job, like wherever you work. If you work at Walmart, picture Sam Walton. If you're a lawyer, picture a judge. If you're an actor, picture... Steven Spielberg comes in and says, let me tell you what, I don't know you yet. What's your name? Okay, Phil. All right, I'm going to give you all of the things you need to be with me and like me. I'm going to pay for your college. I'm going to, I'm going to um, set you up with all the connections and people that you need to know. All you have to do is don't quit. <clears throat> all you have to do is don't pull out of the market. All you have to do is stay consistent and stay committed. And I want you to be entrusted with my stuff. And when I come back, I'm going I'm to show you and see from you exactly what multiplies in your life. And so these guys take, take them for granted. They understand that they're entrusted. It's actually going to come up in a few, few passages. But he gives five bags and boom, five more. And so also one with two bags of gold is the same thing. Boom, two bags invested. Boom, two more. This is the last one. The man who received one bag, he went off. He hid it in the ground, and what was one when Jesus left returned and was still only one. The kingdom of heaven was in a bear market. It was booming. It was moving. It was the opposite of a depression. It was the opposite of a recession, and everyone was doubling their money except for the guy that hid his bag of gold in the ground. After a long time, uh, he comes home to settle the accounts. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with these bags of gold. See, I gained five more. The master replies, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in my happiness. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in my master, your master's happiness. I think we have to see that it's not just that the guy, because of his investments and his faithfulness and his, and his, his, his endurance through the ages, that he just shares in the master's wealth. It's very specific, non-monetarily, that Jesus is saying, you're not just sharing in the master's stuff, but you're sharing in the master's life. You're sharing in the master's 
way of life, his generosity, his, his, his joy, his thankfulness, the kind of stuff that money can't buy. It's like the, the, the beginning of the conversation was about monetary wealth and value, but the end of the conversation becomes about things that money can't buy, the things of the supernatural, the things of the spiritual, the things of the heart. And he says, I want you to share in both of these things, my stuff and my life, my things and my happiness, and I want you to share them with me. And so the man, the second man, did the exact same thing, right? The man who received uh, two bags of gold, he says, you entrusted me with these two bags of gold, and I, I couldn't, in my heart of hearts, let you down. I had to invest back into what was given to me. I, I, was, I was caught up in the contagiousness of your generosity. I had to invest what was invested in me, and I had to see it multiplied. And all that I found was kingdom multiplication. I mean, all that I found was boom market, boom market, no recession, no dip, no downturn, only upturn, only increase, only increase. I only found multiplication of the things that I gave. And so two came into four when Jesus returned. He says the exact same thing. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You will share in your master's happiness today. What started in a gift of generosity continued on in a gift of generosity. It stimulated the market of the kingdom. It started, that's what Jesus did. He catalyzed the kingdom. He catalyzed a new market where you would invest in things and only go upwards and onwards and multiply. But listen to what happens to this last guy. And I think, I think it's, it's, really, it's really relevant. It's really important to see not only the guy's perception of the kingdom and what would happen to his money and his stuff and where he got the stuff in the first place, but also his interpretation of the heart of God. Because it's from his conclusion about who the character of God is that affects the way he does all of his stuff with his money, which in turn affects what happens to the profit of his money. It says it this way. The man who received one bag of gold, he comes to the master and he says this. I knew you were a hard man, like a, like a stingy person. I knew you were, you were cruel. Um, you notice like the word entrustment doesn't come anywhere into this. Like it's not about trust. It's about transaction. It's, it's, it's like the guy misses, like he gets the same bag of gold, but he misses the hand that gives it to him. Like forgets like what the whole story is about. He says, I knew in my heart of hearts that you were cruel and that, and that you, were, you were hoarding and you were a taker and you harvested where you didn't sow. That you picked little bums off the street like me and I knew what you were doing. Like, I knew from the beginning that your heart wasn't good towards us. You weren't really giving. You were ultimately taking. You wanted to give to me to get something out of me. And it wasn't about us, and it wasn't about happiness. It was about profit, and it was cold, and it was calculated, and it was cruel. And you try to take advantage of a guy in a bad situation to go ahead and try and pull a dollar out of 15 cents at the end of the day because I know what a businessman you are. And I know how hard-hearted you are and cruel and merciless. And so I wasn't trying to mess with something like that. And so I, I did what only I would do. I took my stuff, I cut my losses, I pulled out of the market, which I knew would be in a recession, and I buried that gold as hard as I could, as far as I could, so that it would never come back on me. And so here, take back what's yours. Don't ever expect more from somebody than you give them. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus says, you wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I was a harvester where I would want to harvest where I didn't sow and gather where I hadn't scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money in the deposit with the bankers. He's like, look, even people that don't know me at least have enough faith in, you know, some amount of goodness that they would invest and make some return. I mean, maybe not kingdom investment, but, you know, they wouldn't just hide and be scared and live in a bunker their entire life. Like, they, you know, they're, they're somewhat, you know, 
sharing and recipro you know, reciprocity and having you know, investment with, with the world. And he's like, he's like I should have inv inv you know, invested it into the bankers. He goes, but I would have returned and found interest with those people, but take the bag of gold, the one bag of gold, and I want you to give it to, to the one that has 10. For whoever has more will be given abundance, and whoever does not have, uh, that, will be, that will be taken from him. Um, the character of God and, and what the three different people assumed about the heart of God affect greatly what the three different characters did with their life. The first two uh, stewards, the first two servants, received from God the bag of gold, but they remember his heart, and we can see it from their response. Master, you have entrusted this to me. You, you have believed in me. You have um, seen something in me that I didn't see. You... You wanted the best for me. You believed, you, you, wanted, you wanted to give to me and not take from me. Like this is, this is somehow the spiritual transaction that when they put their hands on the investment that God has made into their lives, they see the heart of God before they see the hand of God. They see the, the, the relational perspective before they see the, the, the kind of like material perspective. And, and, and it was like that heart, it, it just gripped me. That generosity, I just said, man, like, who is this and who am I that they would give five lifetimes of wealth to me of something I didn't earn when everyone else counted me out and everybody else thought I was a bum and everybody else thought that I was lame and a loser and not good for my money and good for my word. You believed in me. And, and, and I trusted in you and, 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 I, and I took those five bags of gold and I believed if you said something about the market then what you had to say about the market was better than what I thought about the market. And so I gave everything I could. I gave all the bags and I invested and I invested and you were right. You were so right. You were right that your heart is the right heart and that your process is the right process. And, and so you see the maturation of time, the rich getting richer, as Jesus is saying, and the poor getting poorer. But the other guy is, a, is an eye over his shoulder. The other guy, the last guy, is, is gripped by fear. He's gripped by failure. He's gripped by what if it doesn't work out? And what if the past repeats itself? And what if this never gets better? And the heart of God is always a magnifying glass that's trying to burn me up, who's trying to stop you know, my joy, who's trying to take more than he gets from me. The heart of God is, is, is cruel and he's cold and he's, he's not generous and he's, and he's not a giver and he just wants to take things that he doesn't give to other people. God is not a giver. He is a taker. God is not entrusting me. He's testing me. He's trying to see if I'm going to fail him because I probably will. And when I fail, he's going to catch me in it. He's going to show me what I did and what I did wrong. And he's going to punish me for what I did wrong. And so the best that I can do is hunker down and, and, and live, live in the bubble and stay safe and stay, stay removed and stay, keep my hands clean and not have to trust and not have to give and not have to receive. I'd rather take what God has given me and pull back because I don't want to fail the test. I don't want to fail the test. It's not a trust. It's a test. It's a test. The whole thing is this big setup, this big test that God is waiting for me to mess up so he can smack me on the back of the head and, and, and reprimand me because God is a cruel God. He's a taker. He's not a giver. Life's a test and I'm not going to fail. I'm going to pull back as far as I can because I know that any money invested is money lost. This world is cruel and God is cruel. The heart of God is not kind and the heart of God is not good. And the best thing that I can do is hide my heart and hide my things from him. So the sermon is sentenced today says this, a person afraid of God, like you and me, sees life as a test that they can only fail. I mean, we know that we can't multiply bread into, you know, and fish. We know that we can't make a dollar out of 15 cents. We know from experience that we're not enough. Both, all three understood 
that money is, money is scarce and that, and, that, and that multiplying money is not always the easiest, sure ventures. It's always safer to hold your money than to invest your money, right? And so all three of them knew about the risk. But what was it about the first two that, that was different and juxtaposed from the, from the last one? The first two remembered the God factor. They took an extra moment. They remembered. They were reflective. I don't know. They, they carried with them the heart of God. They remembered where the money came from, and they carried the character of God everywhere they went. And they remembered, this isn't money I'm being tested for. This is money I'm being entrusted and empowered with. This is money that is a get-to, not a have-to. This is money that is a what-if rather than what should be. And so, and so their life, instead of being saturated by fear and insecurity of what's going to happen and is the world going to fall in hell in a handbasket and, you know, are the... Are, are, is the culture going to take over and is, is everything going to hell in a handbasket? Like all of that gives way to it's like, no, but the character and the heart of God is still good no matter what my circumstances or the market says. And so I put my trust and my prosperity in the heart of God rather than the hands of circumstance. And the heart of the person that trusts in the kindness of God can only see their life multiply. They can never lose. They can only win because they put their, hand, their heart in the hands of the one that's trustworthy. So this is, what, this is what I believe that the passage is saying, is that, is that we, we live in one of these two things that Jesus says we can't live in, in both. We either live in the place of trust or in the place of testing. We either live in the place of, of love or in the place of fear. We either live in the place of kingdom revival or kingdom recession. And which one are you? Which one are you in the 25 or 35 or 45 years of experience of your life of circumstance? Do you believe the newspaper? You do believe his kingdom proclamation. Do you believe his promise? Do you believe his heart? Do you believe his character? Is God still good today? Is his heart towards you still kind? Is he still merciful today? Is he, a, is he a mean master that's trying to catch you in something? Or is he a kind master that has entrusted you with something? That is the deep penetrating question of our heart that will in, implicate everything it is that we do today and the next day. We are all working out that doxology on what we believe about the heart of God. The question for us today, this is what I want us to think about is we have one of two options. We can either live the safe and clean life or the messy and invested life. There's only two different ways and paths that we can walk. We could live the safe life or the invested life. The safe life or the shared life. The safe life is the hidden life. The safe life is the clean life, the quiet life. The safe life is I know what's going to happen next life. The safe life is the planned life. The safe life is the life that I don't have to really trust in anyone else except for myself. And the scripture will tell us what will happen in the end of that. We will only lose and always lose in the safe and preserved life. In the safe church life where, where we allow for those outside the bunker to kind of Go to, go to hell in the handbasket and, and being the light of the world just turns into being the light of the church. And so the church has nothing to do with the world anymore. And, and so it just allows for hopefully just the, the pain, the judgment and the condemnation uh, of, of everyday life just to kind of hopefully do its work on humanity rather than the kingdom of God and rather than the gospel. And so we just kind of hunker down and try not to lose anything. We try and stay safe and we try and stay the same and we try and not change and not grow and not invest. We just hold down and hunker down and we bury our life in the past or we bury our life in the someday, but we never, we never invest our life in the now. The other life is completely opposite of that. And he says, he says, he says it in the way that he talks about the investment of these guys with the five bags and the two, two bags. He's like, look, if you're going to invest your life, it is not when it gets messy, it's if it gets messy, it will involve risk. 
right? The Chronicle of Narnia, the great quote from, from Lucy when, when he speaks to Aslan, or to the beaver rather, about Aslan. The beaver says what about Jesus? Jesus is not safe. The whole thing is a mess. The whole thing is complicated and hard and requires growth and requires death to self and requires risk. But what market doesn't? The question isn't, is the world crazy or are people hard to deal with or is, the, is, there, always, is there setbacks? And again, of course there are setbacks. The question, though, about our theology is really, though, is God bigger and better than those things? And right now, even as you think of things that you know God has called you to, but you're scared to go to, it's really not a question of whether or not you think the people are going to be obstinate or oppositional or there's pain on the other side of it. Yes, there is. Yes, there will be. That's not the question. It's not if, it's when it will get hard and when it will get rough. The question is not if it's hard or if it's rough. The question is, is the heart of God good to you today? Is the kingdom of God multiplied and fruitful today? That is the question. The question becomes, not are people bad, but is God good? We know that people are bad. The question that's in deliberation in your heart is, is God good enough to see victory in bad places? Is God still true enough to bring light in dark places? Is God still real enough to bring hope in dead places? That is the question of the faithful steward or the, fear, the fearful steward in your heart is that there is no such thing as a clean and fruitful life or a safe and invested life. There is only one or the other. And so we have the opportunity to live safe and hunker down and small and fearful or we have this, the, the, the ability and the decision really to live in the faithful place where we risk losing but gain everything in him. The kingdom is in a bear market or bull market. It multiplies double fold. It's a promise. It never goes down. It only goes up. And the question is, will you invest and pour in or will you pull out? Is the kingdom in recession or in revival? That's the question that only you can answer. And so that's the question. Will you live the safe, the safe life or the shared life? The scared life or the shared life? I remember a Donald Miller quote uh, one time. He said, the most immature people in this world are people that aren't forced to participate. He said in this book that, 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 that people that are extremely talented and good-looking or they're um, the kids or the sons or the children of, of people that are very, very rich, they never have to fight for anything, and so they don't have to mature. They're not forced to participate. They simply get everything coming to them. They don't have to engage and get involved until they turn, like, you know, 40 or something like that. And then they realize that the, the kind of ego system, ecosystem, ego system that they created around them is a complete mirage. And that people were really just liking them because of their money or because of their looks. And they didn't even know them. And he just goes on to say is that, that non-participation is the, thing that, the only thing that keeps us from growing. Is that, is, is that when, when, we, when we want to become the kinds of people that God has called us to be, then what lies in our path necessarily is a lot of pain and risk and problems in sharing our life with others. In being vulnerable with others. In being wrong in front of others and owning that. The people that don't have to do that, that have some way or means of hiding themselves from other people and from community, they get the privilege of safety, but they also miss the privilege of growth. And they become stunted in a way. They don't grow. They get stuck in a certain, in a certain age. And so we, we, we share our life in this way. We grow in this way. We share our time with others. We share, we share our resources and, and, and our, our money with others. There's a... There's a um, you know, a, a, a great kind of like pithy uh, analogy uh, um, that, that talks about these like big Clydesdale horses that carry these like loads. And if you guys have ever, you know, seen some of this study on synergy and the way that, you know, 
things can be greater than the sum of the parts or whatever, but they're talking about how each horse in this study can carry like 8,000 pounds. So one horse carries 8,000 pounds, but if you were to get another horse to go next to it to pull weight, that uh, it wouldn't just cover 1,600 pounds or uh, 16,000 pounds. So that 8,000 plus 8,000 wasn't 16,000. And in fact, that two horses together can actually pull the weight of three horses. So two horses pulls 24,000 pounds. So the sum of the parts, the synergy of the group you know, working together can actually do more than the individual parts added together, than the collective. And this is what another reason I think that Jesus talks about the shared life or the scared life, because the shared life is the place in community that really we can't accomplish, I think, in his church, what he's called us to do, unless there is a sharing, unless there is a partnering, unless I need to depend on you to do what I can't do, and you depend on me to do what I can't do. This is what the shared life might look like. I wonder what the shared life looks like to you. I think we have an opportunity to live the scared life or the shared life, the, the, the hidden life or the invested life. And I think that's the decision that we have to make. I think we have to make the decision, even collectively as, as a church, you know, in this, in this season. Like, is the kingdom of heaven in a recession or is God alive and well and he's in a revival? Is it a time to pull out or is it a time to pour in? And, and ultimately, I believe this passage is telling us that in every season, no matter what's on the front line of the, head pa head, you know, the, the pages of 18, you know, 1929 or 1935, it doesn't matter. The kingdom is always in a revival. And there's always a double down of everything that it is invested in. And so there's people I know in this room that, you know, I don't see the names and all that sort of thing, but it'll like email me. And there's people that have just decided to sow in to our church. They have given in this room lots of, of money and lots of time, many of you, investing in a time when, when circumstantially things have been uncertain. But you have decided in, in your heart that the kingdom is in a revival and not in a recession. You've decided that it's always time to invest in that, as FDR once said, that fear is the only thing that we have to fear. And it's up to us. It's really a decision, a snap in our mind, a snap in our heart. Is God asleep or is he awake? Is he dead or is he alive? Is the kingdom in revival or is it a recession? That's the decision that has to be made every day. And, and the people of God, the people that will actually invest their life and see kingdom multiplication in times that look like recession have to decide that kingdom is always in revival. And there's always time to invest and there's, there's never a loss or a lack when giving into and pouring into the kingdom of heaven. Um, I've, I've expended my time, but I would love for you to stand and I would love to just have the band come forward and, and, and sing just a verse or a chorus today as we respond just for a few minutes. Um, but I'm thankful for our time this morning, and as I said before, I'm thankful for, for Amy, for the children's workers that are uh, working today, and all the leaders, as I talked about earlier, um, just continuing to invest, um, ultimately, in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, as we respond this morning, I would love to just give you, you know, a thought or a prayer point. You know, maybe it's just, Jesus, what am I holding back, and what am I hiding from you? In what area of my life have I allowed the doubt in the gloom of the present or the past or the fear of the future to dictate what I think about the kingdom of God. God, I repent of that. And that God, I don't need to wait on anyone else except for your heart and your hand to invest my life. All I need to know is that you're still giving out good news. And as long as you are, God, I entrust not half of my, health, my life or 10% of my life, but God, all of my life to you. And maybe that's just where you are, just in a, in, a, in a place of prayer. Maybe there's places in your life. He's not asking you to like claw open your hand to give you something that you don't want to give away. He's asking permission to your heart. Do you still believe that I'm good? 
Do you still believe that I've entrusted you? Do you still believe that I've given you all that you need? Do you still believe that, that I'm walking with you and I'm multiplying everything that you have? You're not forsaken. You're not forgotten. The work that you've done is not unseen. Have you not forgotten that I see everything, that I'm with you, I'm still working your life? Have you forgotten that my kingdom is bigger than any other economic upturn or downturn? Have you not forgotten, forgotten that the kingdom of heaven is always onwards and upwards, glory to glory, and in revival? Have you not forgotten these good things? Hold fast to these things. Hold true to these things. Be a kingdom person that invests and doesn't hide. And so I just invite you to pray in that way as we respond for just two more minutes in worship and we'll close. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.